can I say? I'm back. Uh, you can tell me what your other two wishes are later, but this one is taken care of for you. And it's, uh, it's been a while, so I thought I probably should, uh, you know, reintroduce myself to some of you and uh, introduce myself to for the first time for some others. So my name is Gary. Uh, I'm a high school teacher in Hamilton. Uh, I've been happily married for 28 years. My wife, not so much, but I've enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, um, I guess what should we say here? Uh, my, my likes, my likes are kittens. Long walks on the beach and lemon meringue pie, and my dislikes are mean people, uh, paper cuts, and whoever would dare take the last piece of lemon meringue pie. And so that's who I am. And the last time I spoke, and maybe it was prophetic, I don't know, the last time I spoke, uh, it was called My Last Leg, and it was this idea that maybe it was, because that was five months ago. And uh, I want to tell you, I learned my lesson. That was the, that was the message where I called my Mark a crybaby, and... Uh, and uh, I'm off probation, I'm back, and I'm excited to be sharing with you again. And you know, any, any week Mark's not, not here, we call it free for all Saturday, you know, no Mark, no worries. And uh, uh, it's not quite as effective now they videotape it, but uh, that's always the way we've gone about doing it. But uh, I want to start tonight by reminding you of something that I know you've heard before, because we've talked about it here multiple times. You, it's really hard to be a follower of Jesus and not hear a message on this topic, but I really want to kind of just touch on it before we get to the real content for tonight, because I think tonight's topic, if you will, is one of those things that a lot of people will put in the maybe category. You know, maybe I'll do that. You know, maybe that's for other people. That's not really who I am. Other people should probably do that. And I just want to remind us of something that we're, that we're taught, that we're not just to be someone who listens and hears, but we're called to be people who do. And again, that's not the point of today's talk, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's fair to say we all have different preferences. We do things differently. For example, you know, some people like to go to theme parks. Uh, I don't because I like to throw up in the privacy of my own home. Uh, you'll, you'll see I, I borrowed Mark's picture from last week is because he was correct. Do not Google image search throwing up. Uh, you won't like it. Uh, but, you know, uh, some people like to go hunting. I, I don't, because I have an irrational fear that animals will start shooting back at me. And uh, you've probably heard of Squirrel Team 6. But, uh, you know, uh, some people like to read Shakespeare. I don't, because to be honest, he's never read anything that I wrote. And so that's just who I am. I have preferences. We all have preferences. But sometimes we need to remember that when Scripture instructs us to do something, it maybe isn't based on how, what we think. Maybe it's more based on what God thinks. And so what does the Bible teach? Can we just pick and choose the Scripture we like and maybe leave out the parts we don't? And so the verse we're going to share here in just a second, it's a pretty convicting verse. Uh, and, and just, uh, you know, it's, it's a verse that explains what happens in a lot of churches every Saturday night, every Sunday morning around the world where people kind of come to church as if that was the point of what church is all about, that attendance is the key. And James, the brother of Jesus, and I know as soon as I said that, there's always one in every group. Somebody's like, ah, excuse me, uh, James is the half-brother of Jesus, uh, same mom, different dad. Okay, uh, I, I get it, correct, half-brother. That's the same person, though, same person that goes, ah, excuse me, you don't need a parachute to go skydiving. You only need it if you want to go skydiving twice. And so, yes, correct, but we're just going to move past it. We're going to share this verse from James, chapter 1, and it simply says this, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. 
Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. And again, I think we've all heard that, right? And, and it's one of, these, one of these opportunities, though. I really want to focus in on that word do. And I think it's a, it's a perfect opportunity to once again play my favorite game, Let's take a peek at the Greek. And so we have, our, we have our game board up at the front here, and we're just going to work our way through it. And this doesn't work unless it appears. So if it's not going to appear, just tell me and I'll just... Okay, here it comes. All right, so here, here is our Greek word of the day. Now, I struggled right off the bat with the first one. The first one is meant to be a suckling pig at a luau. And this would be a common side dish. Poi, very good. Why can't I use a picture of poi? Well, poi is basically mashed root vegetables, and every time I looked for a picture of poi, it looked like one of those little poop emojis. So we're going to use that to simplify the word poi. Who is this gentleman in the middle? Fonzie, Arthur Fonzarelli, right? And what does Fonzie say? A. a, that's right. So we got A in the middle. Can I just speak to anybody who's under 40 right here, right now, just for a second? That's what passed for a sex symbol in the 70s, and... Uh, <laughs> Can I just say it was a different time? I don't, uh, I don't know. Uh, and finally, what's this? What's the last one? Taser, right? You all knew it, right? A few weeks ago, Mark said, has anybody ever been tased? And he said, I'm asking the wrong people. And yet, you all knew what that was. So uh, I'm not sure about that. But that's right. We have poietase. The word is poietase. Poietase. And it's the word for do. Now, do is a verb. Uh, uh, Gary, it's an adverb. Yes, but it's a verb. It's an action word, right? Except this isn't. This is a noun. And a noun is the, is the label you give for things or people. And so when we actually look at this word, if you look at the King James Version, it doesn't say you must do what it says. It simply says be a doer. Because that's, that's this idea that you are not, it is not something to be done. It is a call to be a people who get things done. Don't be a person who doesn't to simply be a person who does. And it basically says, can I get a little bit more light? My, uh, we'll edit this out later. My, uh, I didn't bring my reading glasses. I'm kind of flying blind up here. Can I borrow yours? Would that be all right? Here we go. Okay. So it says, says uh, you know, so James is really what he's saying in that section. He's saying, listen, don't deceive yourself into thinking, wow, I really did something. I went to church. I was in the building. You know, I got off the couch, I turned off Netflix, and I came into Kingsway. And some of you are kind of thinking right now, yeah, I'm still watching Netflix. He doesn't know, but I get it. You did something. You got off the couch, you came in, and you're, and you're sitting there thinking, you know, I'm going to sit through a half hour of this guy droning on. Or if Mark was here, an hour and a half of this guy droning on. Five more months. And... Uh, and, I, and I, you know, I didn't go on my phone. I paid attention. I listened. I really should get credit for that. And, you know, I, getting my family out of the house is such a pain. Somebody, there's always somebody who's not ready, somebody who's not quite finished fixing up their hair. It's never me. And now God's going to look at you and he's going to say, you did something. You went to church. And you're gonna, I'm going to bless you because you showed up and you went to church. And you sat there and you listened. And maybe as a bonus, you put something in the offering. And what James is saying is that, no, listening is not enough. He says, you need to be a person who gets things done. It's like James is saying, you're deceiving yourself. He says, listen, would you do this? Would you go to the hardware store 
And would you spend an hour and a half going through all these different color chips to choose a color to paint your house? And then you finally make your choice, is my favorite. And, uh, and, and you go over there and you wait for the guy to shake it all up for you. You pay for it, you take it home. You walk down in the basement and then you slide it under the basement stairs never to be touched again. He said, that's foolish to, to, to go through all that trouble but not actually do something with it. You got to paint your house. There's probably a 50 shades of gray joke in here, but I'm not going digging for it. You, you find it on your own. That's, uh, there's kids here. It, it's, it's, it's a little bit like, you know what? It's a little bit like... Um, uh, buying a treadmill. And so you go online and you research, what size do I need? What, kind of, what horsepower should it have? What are all the attachments I want? And you make your choice and you order it and then deliver it to your house and you take it down to your basement and you just leave it in the box. And James would say, you haven't done anything. He said, you've heard it, but you haven't done anything. It's a little bit like, you know, you, you interview for, for your dream job and you go through rounds of interviews. And after the third interview, the, the head of HR reaches over the desk and shakes your hand and says, congratulations, we're, we're going we're gonna to hire you. And then you say, I don't know, it's not really for me. Like, why, why would you do that? Why would you go through that whole process to not do what it says? I got hundreds of these, so just kind of give me this when you've heard enough. It's kind of like the guy who gets the Tim Hortons app. I'm talking to you, Rick Beal. And when you win your free week of coffee, you never go to Tim Hortons to pick it up. He says, that's foolishness. You know what else is foolish? He says, it, working your way through high school and getting a scholarship. And on the first day of classes, you sit in your bedroom and you play Xbox. He says, it's foolishness because hearing is not enough. Getting ready to do it is not enough. He says, you've got to do what it says. And James just says, stop. Listening is nothing. Doing is everything. You have to do what it says. And what we learn is that application is what makes the difference. You're not supposed to listen to a sermon or read some scripture and go, ah, you know what? Somebody really ought to be doing this stuff. You know, it's not the idea of, you know, somebody who is not me really should get going on that. James says, don't deceive yourself into thinking you'll get credit with God because you showed up and you kind of sat through it. You know, choosing a paint color and leaving it in the can won't make your house look any better. Buying a treadmill and never taking it out of the box will not make you look any better. And hearing God's word, but doing nothing with it won't make anything any better. It's all about doing, and doing is what makes a difference. And that is all preamble. That all needs to go into the back of your head so I can put some new stuff in the front of your head. But I want you to keep that in mind, because as I said, for a lot of people, what we're going to talk about today goes in the mm, no thanks category. And I want to see if that's where it belongs. And so what we're going to talk about today is this idea of confession. And as soon as I said the word confession, most of you thought about the Catholic Church and what we call the penance of confession. And you may, you may have seen something like this before. You may attend a, ch a church that takes place in a chicken barn, and their confession booth looks a little bit different. But you know what this is, right? You know, you know the idea of confession. And so this confession... This confession, this, this is not a Bible thing. This is something that showed up about 600 years after Jesus left. Um, and, and it was really part of the Catholic Church. And it's always been a huge mystery to me what happens in there. Because I'm not Catholic. But I always want to know what happens in there. I always think it's something like this. The priest is in there and he's got one of these scoreboards. And I'm going to share with him what's going on. And he's going to be keeping track. Keeping track. This is what mine would probably look like most weeks right? 
I don't know what they do in there, but here's what we're kind of meant to believe, that going through a process, and this is where they get this word penance from, going through a process is going to make you feel better about you are, where, where you are and your relationship with God. And it's this word penance, you know where that word comes from? It comes from the word repentance. But they are very different words. Repentance is way harder than penance. Penance is the process you go through. But repentance means, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's a turning away, literally a physical turning away from the thing that you want to stop doing, no matter what that thing is. And so I get why people like penance way better than repentance, because on some level, we probably want to do it some more. If you honestly look at your life, can you not say there's some sin, there's something that you just have trouble letting go of? And I think at some level, it's because we want to keep doing it. You know, in the Old Testament times, you would only confess your sin to a priest once. You would go to temple, and you would, you, would, uh, you would tell him what was going on. And the expectation was you wouldn't be back, because once you confessed that sin, you were now on the road to repentance. You weren't going to do it anymore. So over time, con- but over time, confession really became kind of about me. It kind of became about me feeling better about what's going on in my life. And uh, it really is this connection between our conscience and ourselves. But if you go through and you look at every reference to the word confession throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, you will never find a connection between confession and clearing your conscience. That's not what it was for. John Wycliffe, uh, from, he was writing in the 1300s. And if you're 800 years old um, you, uh, and you're wondering, you know, is this, what is happening in the back? So everybody stare at Zane for a second. Everybody stare at Zane, staring at Zane, staring at Zane. Well, he's on the wrong, I hear pages flipping. We're not cutting this out, Zane. This is going out online. Okay, so you'll see him in a second here. He's a frightening guy. And again, if you're under the age of 800 right now, uh, all I can tell you was that he's considered a great sex symbol of his age. But again, it was a, it was a different time. But he was really seen as, he's not really the father of, of um, the modern Protestant movement. But he's kind of more like the weird uncle of the Protestant movement. He, he was 100 years before John, uh, uh, Martin Luther was writing. And, and what, uh, what he simply said was this. He said, private confession was not ordered by Christ, and it was not used by the apostles. This word, private confession. And uh, the Catholic Church did not care for that. And uh, he died very soon after. I don't know why I laughed when I said that. It's not funny. But he died very soon after that. Because this was a time when the church had absolute power over the decisions people would make. And when you go around and you go through all of that scripture. And you just look at what genuine confession looks like. What real confession looks like. It it often felt like it was a first step towards something different than what we see that word as today. Today. And what it really points to is this idea that genuine confession serves as a first step towards repentance. And that's because real confession leads to to real change. And confession in the Old Testament was associated with and often attached to these three words, restitution, reconciliation, and repentance. Because real confession is when we're going to open up the lid on what's going on with us. And we're going to let someone else along with God take a look at what's going on in there. Otherwise, we find ourselves in this trap where we confess the same thing over and over again to God, and yet we don't see our, cha- our behavior change. 
But when you embrace confession, the real biblical idea of confession, the way that Scripture teaches, and we're going to take a look at that in just a second, what we find is that it results in change. That we, we no longer are the people we once were because that simply is the ultimate goal of confession, repentance. And so let's, if we go, but we'll take a few, look at a few examples. We'll start in the Old Testament. We're actually going to start in, the, in, uh, in Numbers. But just to give you kind of a, a time frame here, we're talking about a time when, when the, the people of Israel had been freed from Egypt. And you know that, that whole story, Moses, let my people go, all that sort of stuff. And that's the exciting part of the story. But you've really got to read the next few chapters as what we see is that they now head off on their own and they have no idea how to function as a society. Because here, here's the thing, if you're a part of a slave nation, if you are a slave, you don't have to worry about making rules. You don't have to worry about how things run because you basically do what you're told. And I'll tell you, you know, we, we know this uh, as a fact, you know, Pharaoh was not a fan of what we now call inclusionary politics. You know, no public consultations, no focus groups, no opinion polls. He simply set the rules and all of Israel would follow. And if you don't have any rules, you don't really have a society. You just have a people who are in limbo and, and you don't really have to think for yourself. So we now find them, they're free from Egypt and, and God then gives them governance. And that's what a lot of the Bibles at the beginning, sorry, a lot of the books at the beginning of the Bible are all about, laying out what we now call the law. And in Numbers 5, verses 5 to 7, we see, we see a, a, a use of this word confession, confession. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If any of the people, men or women, betray the Lord by doing wrong to another person, they are guilty. They must confess their sin and make full restitution for what they have done, adding an additional 20% and returning it to the person who was wronged. I'm just going to leave that out for a second because I want us to notice something there. So this, this is any, anything that you might be considered something that you would do wrong to another person. It could be something you said, something you did, something you stole, something you lied about, someone you betrayed, someone you talked about behind their back, someone you, well, you can fill in your own blank. Think about that for a moment. How would you fill in that blank? But look at verse 6. It says, anybody who mistreats someone in any way is unfaithful to the Lord. I'm going to read it again because none of you gasped. That is, that is shocking information. Uh, here's what it says. If you mistreat a person, you have betrayed the Lord. I don't think we often see it that way because I think we like to split things apart. I think we like to be able to split things apart and we can kind of say to ourselves, you know, I love God, but I hate that person. I love God, but I can't stand that person. And we think that's okay as long as we tell God we love him and we try, and, and we try not to kind of... Uh, provoke anything with that other person. And God says, you know, when you, when you hurt someone, you have betrayed me. You have betrayed God. And so it's this Old Testament system that he sets up here. He says this. He said, confession is, is when I come to you saying, you know, I, I stole something. I wasn't fair to you. I cheated. I said something I shouldn't have said, whatever it might be. And, and, and first of all, God, I'm really, really sorry. And God is going, I'm so glad you're sorry. I love your heart but now I want you to go make this right with the other person. Go confess to them. And then what we tend to say is we tend to say something like, well, I confessed to you, didn't I? I mean, isn't that enough? You're God. I confessed what I did to you. Isn't that enough? And God says, it's not enough. He said, when you wronged another person, you've betrayed me. I want you to go make it right with that other person. And, I, and, and in this case, this is the law. 
and actually says, I want you to, to fix it, and I want you to pay 20% more for whatever it is, if there's a monetary uh, connection to it. And if you think about the Old Testament, there was an awful lot of, of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? So if you'd done something wrong, there was, there was a, a tangible penalty. And he says, I want you to do that plus 20%. And now some of you are saying, and it's the same person who mentioned uh, James is his half-brother, you're saying, ah, we're not under the law anymore. And that is correct. But what the best thing about reading the Old Testament is that we can see what God's heart is. We can see what God cares about because God does not change. The law is no longer the law we live under, but the God who wrote that law is still the God that we serve. And it's about restitution. It's about making things right with the person that you've wronged. It's about reconciliation. It's about repairing that relationship with that person that you have wronged. And it's about repentance. It's about you changing your actions so you won't continue to wrong the person that you have wronged. And so this law was given. And for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jews are keeping the laws, at least the best they can. But then one day Jesus shows up on the scene. And he's all about a new covenant. And, and we, we know the story, and we'll talk about it just here in a second, but um, we know there were times when Jesus was exceedingly popular. We know there was times when Jesus was exceedingly unpopular with the people. This was at a time when he was exceedingly popular. Crowds followed him everywhere, chanting his name. Every time he spoke, thousands would show up to listen. And, and so Jesus is walking down the road, and, and it's, it's so cool to see how excited people are to be in his presence. And everywhere he goes, there are crowds and crowds and crowds. And he's walking down the street, and he's a miracle worker. Everybody's heard about what he's done. Everybody's heard his teaching. He is beyond being a rock star. I mean, this is like Beatlemania on steroids. Everybody is just screaming when they see him. They can't, they, they're so excited. And then we hear about this, this man, and we're told that he's too short to see Jesus. And who am I talking about? Zacchaeus, right? We sing songs about Zacchaeus. What do we sing? Zacchaeus is a... Yeah. There's another one. I don't know if you've heard this one. This is a real one. If you're watching from home, I hope you sang along because it kind of it died in here quickly. But I hope you sang along at home. There's another one, and it starts like this. It says, I'm short and fat, and I'm not too pretty. Do you know that one? It's a Zacchaeus song. It's the Donut Man. I have it on VHS. I can show it to you. Have you ever wondered, like, one day you're going to meet Zacchaeus in heaven? Have you ever wondered how awkward it's going to be when you meet Zacchaeus in heaven? Because I can only imagine, I can only imagine, you know, that if he walks up to you and he looks you right in the eyes, or I guess it'd be more like he looks you right in the eyes and he says, sing the song. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to think about it. I'm going to try to stop singing that song. But that's what we know. It's funny, I, I, I googled just Zacchaeus, and the first 20 things were kids' videos, kids' lessons. It's, uh, it, it's important that the kids know that Zacchaeus was short, I'll tell you that much. But we read this section, and we hear about this, this, uh, this, uh, this man who climbs a tree. Well, why? He climbed the tree because the Lord, he wanted to see. Yeah, so he, he wants to see him. And of course, he climbs up the tree, and Jesus does see him. And Jesus calls him down and says, let's go to your place for lunch. And that's not shocking for us because we're like, well, Jesus was really cool and, uh, you know, everybody loved him. And so he saw this guy who was really trying hard to be a part of what was going on. So he, he called him down. That wasn't really what everybody else was doing. 
I can only imagine what the disciples were saying. We we're just told they grumbled. I'm not sure what that means. But I really think they probably thought they thought that Jesus didn't know who he was calling down. You know, they're looking at each other and they're going like, like there's no reason why Jesus should be talking to this guy. But he does. And, and what we find out is that he's a tax collector. And suddenly it makes total sense. And I know I've talked to you guys a hundred times about tax collectors and how it's not like the people who work at the CRA. And I've told you all many times about my wife's tax evasion problems. I've shared that, right? And the, and the eventual trial and incarceration. I've walked you through that story. But uh, what are you shaking your head for? Part of that story is true. I'll let you, I'll let you guess. Uh, but, but, you know, this was a different time because these were people who weren't just you know, doing a job where people resented having to pay taxes. These were people who were hired by Rome to collect taxes. And what they would simply do is they would be told, here's what you need to collect from people. Go collect it. And they would be giving a small regiment of Roman guards to make sure if anybody had a problem, they would take care of that rather quickly. So human nature, people being what they are, uh, they would just charge way more than they were supposed to. And anything they made extra they could just keep. And so people absolutely hated tax collectors. And so, so as long as Rome got what they wanted, Rome was happy. And we find out that Zacchaeus was actually kind of like an overseer of other tax collectors. He was like the regional manager. And he's, he's collecting all this extra taxes from, from multiple different people. And so he is absolutely disliked. And, uh, and it's interesting in the Bible, on numerous occasions, they remind us that it's not really fair to call regular sinners and put them in the same category as tax collectors. They made a new category. They, in one place it says they were, there were many vile sinners and even worse tax collectors. It was this idea that they were the worst of the worst. And it was, it was, not, it was not the sort of thing you would do as a religious leader that you would befriend and start talking to and spend time with somebody who was so hated and so disrespected. But he did, and they, and they go off for, for uh, we assume it's lunch. Um, and as a result, what we, what we see is that uh, Zacchaeus kind of has this, this, I guess, a coming to Jesus moment, for lack of a better term, but he has this moment where he suddenly kind of is affected by what's going on. And in Luke uh, chapter 19, verse 8, we read this verse. It says, Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people, if, right, if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Now, I, we have no idea what Jesus was saying that prompted this. Maybe Jesus was teaching on about being righteous. Maybe he was teaching on, on being fair to other people. Maybe he was teaching about confessing. We don't know. And, but, and maybe he wasn't even teaching anything on that topic. Maybe it was simply Zacchaeus being in the presence of Jesus realized, not that he didn't know before, but realized what he was doing. And he comes to this moment where he says this. He says, I'm going I'm to I'm make it right. And, and he confesses, and he goes, and he, and he owns up to what he's done, and now he's going to make it right. And we think, we think often, we think, you know, that should have been enough. Wouldn't that have been enough that he had just said to Jesus, I'm going to stop. Jesus would be great. That's what I want you to do. I want you to live a life free of sin. Well, I'm going to stop. But he doesn't. He says, I'm, I'm going to make it right. I'm because here's the thing. If you're going to issue refunds to people you've stolen from, you have to speak to the people you've stolen from. He didn't sneak up to their house that night and throw it through a window. He was going to have to face these people that he had stolen from and return that to them. 
And when Jesus hears him say this, when he sees that he's shining this light on what's going on with him, Jesus basically says, that's awesome. I mean, what he, what he literally said was, salvation has come to your home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. And what he's really saying is, this is awesome. He, wasn't, he didn't ask him to do this, but this is how Zacchaeus decided to respond uh, to being in the presence of Jesus. And again, we see this connection between our confession and our relationship with God. This, this, this statement, salvation has come to this home today. This is connecting Jesus to this, to this man's decision, decision. And Jesus didn't say, no, you know what? You don't need to pay people back because that's going to be awkward. It's going to be embarrassing for you. You know, don't worry about it. Just stop sinning in the future. He doesn't say that. He, he, he basically says, this is awesome. This is what I want you to do. And so we assume that Zacchaeus heads off at some point. Kind of reminds me of the woman who was caught in adultery, the act of adultery. When we, hear, when we hear that story, we see that Jesus forgives her, but then he doesn't just say, okay, get back out there. He says, now I want you to stop living a life of sin. And Jesus says absolutely that the goal of confession, the goal of real confession, is to lead to change. And here's why. If Zacchaeus is going to go through all the trouble of making things right with all of these people, He's going to go through all that trouble of paying back the peoples he's robbed and giving them four times as much. Guess what Zacchaeus is not going to do moving forward? He's not going to keep stealing from people at the tax collector's booth. Can you imagine him the next day? He's back out there. Everybody's heard about Zacchaeus. He's giving money back to people. Then he makes his way back to his booth and he sits down. And he says, all right, you owe seven denarii. Let's call it ten. Well, of course not. He's gone public with it. He's confessed what he's done, and, it, it, and we see a change of behavior. It, it, it's, a, it's a huge difference to simply saying, I know I've done wrong, and I'm going to ask God to forgive me. We already know the answer to that. God will forgive you. How many times? Infinite number of times. But what God seeks is a change. What God seeks is repentance to move into the point where you don't do it anymore. Let's go to one more passage. The next verse is from James, the same guy that we talked about at the beginning. And, and uh, he's explaining the concept of confession, and he's talking to a much wider audience. And this is, this, is, this is a great verse because he's talking to a group of people, not an individual person like with Zacchaeus. And, and what he says is, it doesn't change what we've just learned about confession, but it actually kind of widens it to involve more people, I think. And this is what James says in the first half of James 5, 16. We're going to look at the whole section in a second. But in the first uh, half of uh, James 5, 16, it simply says this, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I think many of us say to ourselves, yeah, no, that's, that's going to be awkward. That's going to be really hard. That's going to be a really difficult thing for me to approach another person and say, I've done something wrong. It's not, it's not something that we naturally want to do. So why are we called to do it? It's, 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 it we, we tend to say, and we go back to that, uh, that, that quote earlier, I like my private confession with God because it's easier in some way. And I can't explain how it's easier, but it's easier than actually facing up to someone you have wronged and making things right. And it's that confessing of your sins to each other. And what, we, what we're afraid of is when I start to do that, people are going to see a little bit of the real me. People are going to see the non-perfect version of me that I present in church. People are going to see, you know, these areas of life where, where I have sinned. And you know what's going to happen? It's going to cause me to have to change. 
I'm going to have to repent. I'm going to have to bring about change because that's the goal of real confession. Real confession leads to real change. And when we read this larger context, I want to make sure we don't just gloss over this. This is a larger instruction that James is talking to people in the church. And he says this, Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you, and these statements, these any of you statements are key. Are any of you sick? You should call the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. This was not a one-off statement about confession. He says, when you are together, here's how I want you to be. I want you to be singing together. I want you to share with each other what's going on in your lives. I want you to admit what you're struggling with carefully admit what you're struggling with someone so that you can see change come to your life. He's saying, open up your lives with each other. Open up the part of your life that you don't really let other people see. And he says, when you do that, you're letting a little bit of God's light shine in there. Because, you know, if we know what James knows, it's simply this, that many of us know from experience, and many of us have learned the hard way that, you know, it's a, a secret sin in your life is a little bit like a splinter. The longer it's in there, the worse it gets. The best thing you can do with a splinter is to get it out. And the best thing you can do with a secret sin is that just keeps happening over and over again in your life is, of course, you're going to talk to God about it, but then you need to talk to someone else. God says, I know you're sorry. You don't have to tell me you're sorry anymore. I know that. What I would really like you to do, though, is I want you to change that behavior. And the way, one of the ways he gives us to do that is this idea of confession, because real confession leads to real change. And if I could just get a little more personal with you just for a quick second, the bottom line is this. If you have kind of that secret sin, that secret habit that you just have a hard time kicking, you're in this rhythm of kind of committing this same sin over and over. It keeps coming back to you, and then you pray to God about it, and you feel a little bit better, but it doesn't change your behavior. I wonder if we could admit that really we're, what we're doing is we're playing a game. We're playing a game where, and, and if we were willing to admit that, I would ask you this, if you're playing a game, do you feel like you're winning? I know that I don't. And then when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, confession is a pretty simple thing. You just tell the person that you've hurt. You tell the person that you've hurt or you've injured or you lied about. You tell that person that, you, that you're sorry and you confess it to them. Their response is not your responsibility. You confess it to them. And if it's more of a habit or a secret sin that doesn't really have a victim, but it's something in your life that is just running you ragged, would you tell somebody who can help? Tell somebody who can help. Because if you don't have somebody that you might be able to say, here's somebody I can, I can basically tell them and call myself out to them, is there somebody in your life that you can trust to share that with? And so what do you need to tell and who do you need to tell become, becomes our model. And you know, for people, if you're ready, if you're willing and able and ready for a change, it really is as easy as that. But it also really is as hard as that. It's a difficult thing because confession is extremely powerful. It's extremely, it's extremely powerful to do this. But it's really this kind of a session, a sequestration procession. I don't know if I start with the right letter, I'll probably get the word right. It's this procession of events in your life. 
And so the question has to be like, how do you bridge that gap? How do you know how to do this? And, and because, you know, reading, needing to confess to one another, you have to be, you, you can't just, you know, announce it from the street corners. That's what, not what we're called to do. Uh, you have to be, think about what's appropriate. Because if not, I think it can actually be dangerous to, sh- to share things about yourself with people who don't necessarily care about you. And so I would start by saying this, do you have a small group experience in your life? Because I would argue that small group experience becomes a breeding ground for finding people you can trust and finding people you can talk to. Do you have a home church? Are you in a men's group, a women's group, a small group, a volunteer group here at Kingsway? Are you in a starting point group? Do you have a Bible study group? Are you meeting with a small group of people in any way? Because small groups is where it's normal to share what's going on with you. We used to pass a microphone around on Saturday nights, and I'm not embarrassed to say, often with catastrophic results. It's not the appropriate place to confess your deepest, darkest secrets to a bunch of strangers or people you kind of know. But there is a place. And you have to think about where am I going to meet those sort of people or do I already have that sort of person in my life? And, and it takes some caution and it takes some wisdom. I'll tell you, for me, it was about 10 or 12 years ago that uh, I realized that I had been playing this game. And I've been playing pretty hard at this game. And I, I met a man named Don. And Don opened, I, 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 I still to this day cannot say why I opened up my life to this man, but I did. I told him what was going on with me. I told him how my marriage was broken. I told him how I, I felt a failure as a father. I told him how I was basically making everybody around me miserable because I had such a self-centered life. And as soon as I told him, I started to realize I had to change. I couldn't meet with Don every week and spend time with Don every week and have a conversation with Don every week about how terrible I still was. It's, a, it's an amazing thing that I can't explain why it mattered so much to me how Don responded to what was going on in my life, but I could just gloss over things with God. I could do a 15-second prayer with God and feel better about myself, but I felt like I had to talk to Don and be real with him. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing, and, it, and that's why I believe God gave us confession is, is this understanding that God created us. God knows how we work. God knows that there's a difference between telling somebody we trust and just murmuring it in a prayer to ourselves. And that level of confession is really what can help us get to the point where we see repentance. We see our life changing, that we're no longer doing the things that we don't want to do. And so who do you need to tell and what do you need to tell them? And I think, I think if you're ready to get serious about this sort of thing, it's going to take some thinking. It's going to take some conversations. And you're going to have to find that person that you feel you can trust and you can share with. But beyond that, if you have hurt someone, if you have somebody in your life with a strained relationship, and you can even claim part of the responsibility for that, God calls you to confess that. God calls you to tell them what happened. You can't, you can't control their response but you can be faithful to God's request. And I think it's as simple as this, that once we believe that real confession leads to real change, I believe that our real confession can lead to our real repentance. Let's pray. Lord, just thankful for an opportunity to share, thankful for an opportunity to be with your people. Uh, I've been giddy with excitement about, uh, for me, my return to Saturday night. It's, uh, 
It was such a big part of my life that was just kind of stolen away for a couple years, Lord. But I love coming to this church on Saturday night because it, it, for me, it is just a place where people come and they're real and they're seeking after you. The difference between a Christian in name and a follower of Jesus is massive, Lord. And I just I love this church for promoting this idea that we need to be followers of yours. We're not simply playing a game. We're not simply, uh, you know, hearing but not doing, Lord. We want, to, we want to become more like you. And to do that, we need to change who we are. Thankful for that, Lord. Thankful for everyone here tonight. Just pray for, for everyone as they leave tonight that they would not be discouraged by what they've heard, but rather encouraged. But they also, Lord, they would not just forget the need to find that person in their lives that they can share. Find that person in their lives they can confess to because that's how we see change. I'm just so thankful for that, Lord. Just pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we got the discussion questions. Well, that was fast, Zane. Zane has been redeemed. Uh, here, so I, I always, uh, we always do this first question. I always add the bracket there because I'm just, uh, I'm just being honest. You know, what, if anything, jumped out at you from tonight's talk? Uh, I know that Mark doesn't put that in there because he's, he, he's expecting that something will jump out from his, but that's what he does for a living. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a once-every-five-month guy, so maybe something jumped out at you. Uh, can you come up with an example of what James may have called foolish? Can you, can you think? It can be personally something you've done or even just kind of a theoretical, if you will, but uh, just to get you chatting and just to get you talking in your small group. Um, third question is, what ways would it be an advantage to confess to a stranger? In what ways would it be a disadvantage? You know, that's really what confession has turned into is this idea that if you, if you tell somebody, you know, who, who's, whose job it is, is to, as a pastor or a priest or somebody, that they are, they are somehow able to make that change in your life. Is that easier or is that harder? Number four asks, why do so many of us feel that it's much easier to talk to God about our sin than it is to other people? I struggled with that a lot the last few weeks. I, I can't tell you how many times I, I decided I wasn't going to preach this because I couldn't put my finger on some of the things. And then I just decided, you, you guys can figure it out. I'll just say a bunch of stuff and you can talk about it. So well, what is that? What is that in us that makes it easier to talk to God about our shortcomings than it is other people? And finally, what do you have to tell and who do you need to tell it to? And that's probably more of a private thought unless you're already in that sort of uh, relationship where you have somebody that you can open up your life to and, and, and bring about that accountability and that, uh, and that repentance. And then, of course, we'd love you in, in, your, uh, in your small group time, whether it's here or at home, uh, to spend some time in prayer as well. So um, excited to be here, as always. Excited to have Mark back next week. And uh, just uh, looking forward to, to uh, just continuing this uh, journey together.